All right, so, so uh, welcome all. This is uh, our, our first sort of guest lecture in the, uh, this year's edition of Technology Entrepreneurship. Uh, we're doing it as a recording due to time differences. Uh, uh, with us today, we have Andrew Romans, who is going to be our venture capitalist guest lecturer. So Andrew is a general partner at Rubicon Venture Capital. He's also the CEO and general partner at 7BC Venture Capital. He's also written three books, uh, uh, two on venture capital and another on venture capital blockchain that, 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 uh, uh, in that, that crossroads. So it's, it's, uh, it's really a treat for us that Andrew has taken, uh, uh, taken a little piece of his precious time to to talk to us today, right? So, so we're gonna chat a little bit. Andrew's gonna uh, share his wisdom, and hopefully, it's gonna be a great conversation. So, so Andrew, welcome very much, uh, uh, and thank you for for coming. Uh, for thank you for having me. Good to be here. Um, so just to kick things off, I mean, how did you how did you get into this, right? How did you end up doing what you're doing? Sure. Um, so I, I've always been an entrepreneur. So I started my own little startups in high school um, from the time I was 14 years old. Um, I had an assassination game going in the school. And then um, I had a little nightclub business running in high school where I finished in Paris, France. And then I had a t-shirt business throughout college. And when I graduated college, I got, just by accident, my first job was in technology and um, in the software Unix space. And then I moved into telecom and I saw an opportunity to create a company. And I started my own company, which raised over $100 million of venture capital funding. And so when you go through all these venture capital funding rounds, you probably meet 20 to 60 VCs, venture capitalists, per funding round. And so we keep raising money for the same company at a bigger valuation. And so I met a lot of them and I understood from my experience how it worked. And then eventually made the decision to start my own venture capital fund. Um, and I don't think I really, I'd be lying to myself if I took a job at a large company. I just don't think, I would, I would be happy doing that. Mm -hmm. Well, the, I can, uh, I often, when I talk to my students, I, I, um, I try to emphasize the, uh, even though it's, it's, it's a rather rough job being an entrepreneur, there's this, uh, this is ability to control your own fate that, that is, is quite attractive as an entrepreneur. Yeah. How, so, so I, I've, uh, We've had a lecture uh, on, on how to fund your venture. Uh, I'm obviously not a venture capitalist myself. Uh, you know, as, as the saying goes, the, those who can't do, they teach, right? But uh, um, so, so I would be interested if, if you, from your perspective, could you know, spend a little time to, to sort of outline how you see sort of the stages of investments uh, in, in, a, in a typical startup, if, if there ever is one. Um, and, and some thoughts on that. Sure. Well, I, I actually, um, having, having started a number of companies myself and then been involved in now really hundreds of companies as an investor, um, 
I, I do think and talk about how to create something out of nothing and how to create value in the very, very beginning. And in my first book, which you can get in English and Chinese as well, um, that book, I give very specifics, but I'll outline a few here. One is um, what I did with my company, the Global Tele-Exchange, was I started recruiting advisors to be advisors to the business, where I was giving them a little bit of equity without raising money. And these were very big, important people in the industry. So I had the former chief financial officer of AT&T, which was the largest telecom operator outside of Japan in the world at the time. And so you can recruit a team of advisors, that's good. And sometimes I say even pitch to lawyers before pitching to VCs. If you find the lawyers that all they do is venture capital financings and M&A work, they've got a really good network and they can even introduce you to investors that are suitable for each stage that you're at. And I did something which I think can be replicated is I recruited five people to be like, I call them my lieutenants, to be the head of each different business area for my startup. And these guys were older than me. They had kids. They couldn't afford to just join a startup with no funding. So I said, contingent upon $5 million of funding, we signed employment contracts that they would work for my startup on a salary of $150,000 each, which was a lot of money in the mid-1990s. And so I actually, by the time I went to VCs, I managed to have, it would be similar to going to Huawei or ZTE in China. I had Lucent. Lucent Technologies offered me $25 million of vendor financing so I could buy telecom switches up to, it's like having a credit card with a credit limit to buy stuff from this big tech, like Huawei type company for up to $25 million, but contingent upon closing a minimum of $5 million cash funding from a VC. So I had a full team. I had the biggest telecom partner to help build this network. And all I needed was $5 million of funding. And I had a very strong senior industry advisors built in. So before raising any money, I really kind of put together the team that was needed you know, with a clear vision of the market we were going after and some unique technology we were going to build to give us a huge advantage over, you know, competitors and the way things would be done with us much better than the way it was being done without, you know, our startup. Um, but Eric, you asked another question too, which is for your students to understand, there is a continuum of investors that invest very early stage, almost when it's still an idea with one person and there's no company yet, all the way up to investing in, I would say pre-seed, some people say friends and family, but there's more institutional pre-seed money now than ever before. There's accelerators that often provide a little bit of funding and some, some structure that brings you out to a demo day where you're pitching to a room full of physical investors and virtual investors online. There's investors that'll invest while you're in the accelerator, hoping to see a big jump, getting into the good ones. They see a lift within you know, four to six weeks of their investment going up that they invest at a lower valuation than the demo day round. You invest, there's the demo day financing, and then you get into kind of seed extension 
or pre-Series A funding rounds. And I think in the U.S., you typically see the startups have $100,000 of monthly reoccurring revenue by the time they're doing a late stage seed round. And so that's really over a million dollars of reoccurring revenue. And then when you have a Series A, the size of a Series A these days is around $10 million. So in order to value the company where you're only taking 20 or 30% and putting in a $10 million check, they tend to want to see more revenue to justify that. So we're typically seeing um, something like um, $500,000 of monthly reoccurring revenue. So at least 6 million annual revenue run rate. And then there's series B, series C, series D, up to the company could IPO, but they're still private like Uber raising at a huge private valuation. And you have people buying and selling already. So even though there's no M&A acquisition of the startup or listing on a stock exchange like Shanghai Stock Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange, you have early investors and employees are selling some of their position to other investors buying at a higher valuation. So I just wanted to give you, there's sort of a full picture of, of investors at every stage. Mm, all right, That's, that, sounds, that sounds great, thank you. Um, so, you know, as this is a course, right, uh, the students are, well, students, right? So, so uh, I, have, I, I have had students in the past who have already started companies, as far as I understand this year, uh, maybe not, though, you know, the normal in-break discussions we, we have uh, is not possible this year as we do online teaching, right? So I may have missed some. But let's assume that most of our students are sometime in the hopefully near future, uh, first-time entrepreneurs. And uh, if it, things move well for them, they will at some point start meeting you guys or you or your colleagues right so so um and of course your whole business is to invest in in, in good startups so, so you're really looking for them but as a first time entrepreneur it may feel rather daunting to to convince uh, uh the movers and shakers of the, the venture capital industry to fund you know particularly just me right so so what what sort of advice in general would you have to uh, to an entrepreneur trying to raise money from a venture capital, you know, what's the secret sauce to actually get funded, so to speak? Well, I think there's, you know, in my experiences in China, and Eric, you and I have had the opportunity to meet in person in China before. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot more venture capital funding in China than there was a couple of years ago. I think things have slowed mm-hmm. down a little bit, but I would argue there's almost too much money chasing too few good deals in China. And it may be easier to get funded with the same company at the same stage in China than it is outside. Now, there's going to be a lot of variance, depending if you're in Chengdu or Shenzhen or Yangzhou or Hangzhou or wherever you are. Um, Just like there's more, you know, about 70% of all the venture capital funding in the United States is in Silicon Valley. And, um, you know, more than 70% of the unicorns or billion dollar valuation companies are in Silicon Valley and all top five companies by market capitalization on the US stock market are in 
California or Washington State. Um, you know, it's just Microsoft and Amazon are the only two up there. So it's all West Coast now. Um, you may see uh, some Silicon Valley popping up in different parts in different parts of China. But a short answer to your question, Eric, is VCs tend to look at three core things. They, if they don't see these things, they typically do not invest. They need to see a team that they believe in. And the team needs to not only be a strong team in general, but the correct team for that mission. So you wanna, if you're attacking the print industry, if the team has experience in the old print industry, and they're now trying to digitize it or put it online um, and automate it with AI or something, um, is that the right team for that job? So team is probably the most important thing. Um, a second thing is that the market needs to be there. Now, if you're in China, you've got a, a, the world's biggest or maybe the second largest market in the world. So that's a big market, that's very important. If you're addressing a small topic in a big market, the VC will say, well, how big can this be if only less than 1% of people in China would ever do this? That's not a big enough market. So identify a large market, addressable market. Um, and if the market you're addressing is too big on day one, you might um, go bankrupt and get killed by bigger players. Sometimes it's good to have a strategy to address a well-defined market that you could become a monopoly in. And then, and then use that to grow into a larger market. So market is extremely important. Technology for us is something we must see too. And most technology-driven VCs want to see that you either have unique technology or a clear period of six months or more of a lead ahead of your competitors and that you can maintain uh, a head start and be ahead of your competitors when it comes to technology. Um, and you know, you could talk more about little minutia of scaling and things, but I would say team, market, and technology are three core areas that you wanna have a very strong story on those three things. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that, that, that you know, uh, aligns with my thinking. Um, some people would argue, and I've had a VC uh, a guest lecture before who, whose core argument was, you know, if you can avoid us, do so. <laughs> what would you, you say what? about that? And if what you can avoid us, do so. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, go well, ahead. Basically, the question is what, what, when you, uh, what should you, uh, what dangers should you, you should you be aware of as a, when you start uh, bringing in investments from from venture capitalists? Well, uh, first of all, VCs have different strategies. If you're investing very early stage and you have a large portfolio, you're going to have a higher percentage of your startups go bankrupt. If you're investing later stage, where they're they're already profitable or very high growth it's less likely they'll go bankrupt. And as an investor, your money possibly is the first money to get out as opposed to the last money to get out. So there's different, mm. you, you know, there's different um, perspectives. Not every business is suitable for venture capital funding. So a lot of services businesses that all they do is they make websites 
and there's no technology that's unique and it's just a services business or it's a headhunting business. It's like a consulting, a consulting type business. And so not everyone is suitable for venture capital. And for VCs that do have a death rate, imagine that you've got a $150 million fund and 50 million of your money is gonna go bankrupt. So it'll go into startups and it never comes back. Another 50 million that you invest, you get your money back one X. So you're now down 50%. The other third has to do so well that it moves the needle on all the 150 to at least a 40% IRR. So, and you're hoping to make a five or six X return on the 150. So that means that you need to show a VC that if this works and it goes well, it will not only be a good investment by itself, but it'll make up for the dead 50 million and the flat 50 million to still put you as, a, as outperforming really all other asset classes. Venture capital typically outperforms every other asset class. If, there was, if, if we could make it bigger, we would. It's got a natural, um, how much money is in the system chasing good deals, you know, like ecosystem balance of how many tigers can survive in that African country, you know? Maybe that's a bad metaphor. But um, in general, um, when someone says, avoid us if you can, you know, for, for my early businesses that did not have VCs, I didn't have to give up ownership. So imagine you build a company and you sell it for $5 million and you get 100% of the exit consideration. So you literally got on one day, $5 million cash. You have to pay tax, but it's all yours. An alternative is that you went through five or six VC funding rounds where you're on average selling 20 to 30% of the equity. So you're getting diluted. You own less and less and less. And if you, if you raised, uh, say, $5 million of venture capital funding, typically the VC gets their money out first, and then it's pari passu. Everyone gets paid their ownership percentage. So if you own 10% of the company and it's sold for $5 million, then you're looking at maybe making only 500K. But if the first 5 million pays the VC, that's a liquidation stack. They get their money out first as preferred shareholders. You're maybe not making so much money. So for some people, they would say, I would rather own my business and not be obligated to pay uh, the VC first before I get my percentage. On the other hand, with funding, you can often use that money to develop a product that you didn't have the cash to develop when you were just purely running a profitable business that was probably like a consulting business. So some companies are more suitable to venture capital than others. And in some cases, the entrepreneur might be smart to maybe not take capital and own everything and exit or don't raise that much capital. I know a guy, uh, Raul Vora, he founded Reportive. He only raised a small amount of money, like he raised something like one and a half million or two million, and then he sold the company to LinkedIn. So the first, it, LinkedIn bought it for $15 million, and he only had to pay this two million back, and he owned something like 70% of the company. 
to get most of that exit consideration. Now he found it superhuman. I've invested in it at different uh, valuations and the valuation of his business now is already over $500 million in value. Um, his percentage ownership is quite small, but his value on paper is now far bigger than the 15 million. Now I think for him, it was good that early in his life, I mean, literally in his mid twenties, he sold his business. My kids have enjoyed his Lamborghini that he's got. So he's living life well. And now he can afford to build a big company that could maybe take more than 10 years to get to an exit. So, yeah. And, and so, so basically, you know, you need to, uh, for many reasons, but this is yet another reason at an early stage of your, of your venture, sort of have a, a sense of where you want to end up with this personally right? and uh, to, to make this decision. Would you, would you say so? Absolutely. And, and I was trying to convey a little bit of that knowledge early when I was saying that you have investors that invest very early or they, they, they invest along the entire continuum or they only invest at this stage or that stage. And, and you do have a secondary market. So for example, we invested into a company called Daily Harvest at a pretty early stage. And then Lightspeed, which is a very large fund, that their fund is so large that for them to make a $1 million investment and make a 1,000x return doesn't do a lot to take a bite out of this $1.2 billion fund, which they wanna deploy over two or three years. So they're looking to write much larger checks. The company only wanted to raise $15 million, one five, and we ended up agreeing on a $47 million investment from Lightspeed into Daily Harvest, of which only 15 million was what we would call a primary investment. The remaining money was all secondary. So you had founders and early investors, friends and family, really early stage investors that said, hey, I'm gonna sell 20% or 10% of my shareholding at this big valuation when I was an early employee. And now this enables me to buy a house or send my kids to an expensive American university that at that point in their life, it made sense. We discussed, did we want to sell any of our position into it? And we decided not to sell anything. But we also chose not to invest at, the four, at, at that big valuation. So we, we, we liked it at 30 million, not as much at 300 million uh, you know, valuation. So we were happy to not sell, but not put more money at that point. Many others were selling and new investors were buying shares on the secondary market. Hmm. Hmm. So that, mean, that means that I, if you're thinking, do I sell my company now so I can be set up for my next one? Or do I not sell my company, but just sell 10% of my stock to the newest investor? People have more options now than they did 20 years ago. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, so... I, I, now when we've discussed that, I, I had a question myself that I, I've actually never considered much, but I, I, I guess you would be a good place to, to answer it. I mean, over the life cycle of, of, uh, of a VC fund, right, um, 
because as you said a couple of questions ago you after a while i mean the, you hopefully about one third or so of them will do well to sort of you know uh, make sure that you, you overall get a good return of the fund, right? But over the lifetime, then when you, because I, I presume at some point, maybe halfway, you will, you will start to get a sense to who, who the winners are and who, you know, where's the slack. Um, how do you interface with the ones who you're, you're getting more and more convinced it's not really going to cut it in the end, right? Do you sort of... Yeah let them go or, or, or what do you do with those guys? So um, every VC is unique. Every person in human is unique. So they're not all the same, but every VC should have a very well-defined portfolio construction. Okay. And so I'll, I'll talk about what our portfolio constructions have been and what they are. And then I'll come to what do you, how do you communicate to the V to the entrepreneur? that you don't want to put more money into. But a common strategy that we had at Rubicon was, we're going to take 30%, 3-0, of our cash, that's the dry powder for funding companies, and we're going to make sure that we spread it somewhat equally across a minimum of 20 different companies. So 15 is a magic number. If I see a VC investing into fewer than 15 companies in its early stage, I think they're actually foolish and stupid. They're playing lotto, which my father calls tax on the dumb, buying a lotto ticket. So you really want to achieve a diversification of minimum 15. We kind of like 20 to 25. So 30% of the money is now so diversified, if 10 of them went bankrupt, you should still be fine. Four of them would easily return all the money. One of them might return the whole fund twice, like a superhuman or a daily harvest. and even if you got half your money back on one and the fund is already profitable, that's great to be getting that money back, even if you're already profitable. So you can see a partial loss where you lost half your money. If the fund is profitable, that's a wonderful day. Like my wife will be happy to see we just got 20% of that money, you know, that came back to us. Um, now, 70% of the money we're using for uh, follow-on investing into the existing portfolio. And so this is where we're putting the 70% of the money into our winners, not the losers. And that raises the question you asked, how do you communicate to your non-performing company that we're not going to provide you any cash funding at a time when you need it more than ever? But, but to finish up on portfolio construction, 30% very safe diversified 70 percent i like to joke about uh gordon gecko with insider trading information that gordon gecko in the movie wall street goes to prison for buying and selling stocks on the stock exchange that are liquid based on insider trading information so he's got was it charlie sheen running around on a motorcycle finding out about blue star their their sales deals and then trading and then the very next day, they, when the news hits the press, they sell their entire position. And he goes to prison. Nobody wants to go to prison in China, and nobody wants to go to prison in the United States. So with us, I like to say, we invested in these 20 companies. We, we, we have the financial information on all of them. We're trying to help them. So we're continuous, we're like a continuous big data machine 
collecting information and deciding which one do we put more money into. So Daily Harvest does really well. We invested in them three times before we stopped investing. Other companies are failing to get customers. They're failing to get invest, new investors in and they're running out of money. And we're saying, I'm not gonna put more money into it. Now, we only did 30% to achieve the diversification and 70% is almost, it's never guaranteed, but it's going into the real winners. So it actually makes the risky venture capital asset class safer than the stock market, safer than the bond market in a quantitative easing pandemic environment, safer than real estate. So we believe that this portfolio construction is a high, high reward, low risk asset class. So instead of saying it's high reward, high risk, we're saying it's high reward, low risk, which makes it a beautiful asset class. Now to finally answer your question, if you can even remember it after me talking for so long, <laughs> the, the truth is uh, entrepreneurs, a lot of them will say, if you don't fund me when I needed it, I will hate you forever. And I will say, Andrew Romans is a vulture capitalist, money-loving Satan. He's the devil because he didn't fund me when I was sinking like a sinking Titanic. And I have to live with that, that some people will say that about you. Most entrepreneurs understand our portfolio construction and they know that. And we say to them, I'm going to introduce you to everyone I can and try and get them to invest into your company. But our fund doesn't have the model of invest in a company. When things go really, really bad, we put more money into it. Now, sometimes you can. Sometimes you can say things are not going well. I believe if we fund the company with some more money, we would actually get a 3x liquidation preference, and we could still sell the company for less than the total funding it's gotten, and we'll get our bridge round back 3x, and we'll have a, a better outcome for everybody. So even in a bad situation, we can position ourselves to be very supportive of the company, and let's say that the company raised $10 million, and we literally put in uh, $1 million, we have a 3x liquidation preference, the company sells for three and a half million, we get a 3x on the three, and we basically wiped out on the earlier money. So, you know, every situation's a little different, but um, some people call it a negative signal if existing investors are not willing to put more money into the company. And to some extent, that's true. And to some extent, I think that you know, Tencent and Alibaba and Baidu Ventures, those are big boys and big girls. They can make their own decision, even if 7BC decided not to write a follow-on investment check. And I'll tell them, we're right, we're right now writing bigger checks ourselves into our companies that have over 100 million in revenue. This company just doesn't fit that model. We were happy to be in it early, and we're happy to see you join us in supporting the company. So we'll, we'll say everything we can to say positive things, but we'll be very disciplined on adhering and sticking to our portfolio construction to basically take the risk out of the asset class for our 
limited partner investors in our fund. Yeah, thanks. And to, to our students, I, I, I want to emphasize that th this is this is the reason uh, I've been talking about in a previous lecture about you know how v a VC functions uh, and how they operate and why Andrew is here to talk to you too, right? So that when you look for investments from a VC, you know you know what what motivates them and why they do what they do, right? So you know who you're dealing with. So you 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 you're not in for uh, nasty surprises because you understand you understand what they are doing. Uh, they are they are doing business as well. Right? So, um, you you mentioned uh, Tencent Alibaba just now, and that 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 makes me think of uh, because one of the books you wrote is about corporate venture capital, and uh, which, um, well. To, to an untrained nine, mine is money, right? But not necessarily so, right? So, how would you sort of, uh, how would you describe any differences between what we call normal venture capital and corporate venture capital, especially from the perspective of you know the investee, the companies that are trying to raise the money? I think it's an extremely complicated topic, and the more I learn about it, the more complex it becomes for me. I. I have the personal experience of being a founder of a company that raised um, a lot of money from Lucent Technologies as a corporate uh, venture capital you know, group. So they're looking for strategic returns more than just a financial return. They typically want to see both. Um, and um, actually, I have a background in telecom and after the dot-com crash, and the end of the golden days of telecom, the only way to get vendor financing was to get the China Development Bank to lend money to ZTE or Huawei. And then, and then Huawei would let you build your network for free. And then after you get customers, you pay Huawei who pays down the China Development Bank. And um, so I've done a lot of business with Huawei over the years. And Huawei asked me to advise them on the formation of their corporate venture capital unit. And I said, okay, I know, all, I know basically all the big CVCs in the world. Why don't I interview the top 20 and I'll ask them how they do everything and what they would do differently. And I'll put that together as a report for Huawei. And I'll also keep interviewing another 100. I think I had over 200 interviews in the end with CVCs, which for me is just my normal job. I have breakfast, lunch, coffee, tea with a CVC, looking at their deals, looking at my deals, and interviewing them for the book. And so I wrote a book, Masters of Corporate Venture Capital, that has that the original 20 Huawei interviews, and then like another 160. And it's complicated. For example, um, I introduced Node Prime to Albert Kim at Ericsson Venture Partners from your native Sweden. And Ericsson's a good company. They're number one in a declining market. How many more mobile phone networks do we need in Hangzhou? And so they're in a declining market. So they're using corporate venture capital as a weapon to acquire companies in the data center business. And I had led the investment into this data center company, Node Prime. So I introduced them to Albert over at uh, Ericsson Venture Partners, the CVC, and they invest in the company at a much bigger valuation, good for everybody. And then they ended up becoming the biggest customer of the company. 
And then they decided we need to acquire this business. So now they have a little bit of a conflict of interest. Ericsson wants to buy the company for a low price and the company and their VCs want to sell the company for a high price. So think about that, Eric. These guys come in as a CVC and invest in the company. And then now their parent company wants to buy them. Do they want to sell it for a billion or do they want to sell it for a hundred million? They wanted to buy it for the lowest price possible. And they have a board seat voting. Let's take the low offer from Ericsson where the rest of us are saying, no, make them pay a billion to buy our company. So that's just a small illustration of the conflicts of interests that you can experience when dealing with corporate VCs. And, you know, their investment committee might include the CFO of a hundred billion dollar Huawei. And literally that guy needs to read a memo to make a follow on investment of $700,000, you know, while he's out buying a billion dollar power plant or something. So corporate VCs are notorious for being slow. Sometimes they need to have the head of a business unit say, I'm not going to develop it at home and we're going to externally develop this. There's a lot of things happening there that will make them uh, slower and with more conflicts of interest than a financial VC like mine. But they're promising, oh, we could become your customer or we could buy you. We could become we could do distribution for you around the world and your revenues will go up, 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 and up. So we're seeing corporate venture capitalists are in typically, depending on the country, between 20% and 40% of every VC financing. In Japan, it's 80%. So most venture capital in Japan is corporate venture capital and they don't seem to have native independent, native independent ones. So to ignore it is if you're an entrepreneur and you plan on raising venture capital funding, I don't make a lot of money on the book, but I'm telling you it's required reading. You should understand it before it's too late that you've made an irreversible decision and you can't go back on it. I, sorry if I, uh appear distracted here no problem recording from home. Live Everybody from my home it doesn't matter my three-year-old is getting antsy so he <laughs> keeps walking in there um yeah that makes a lot of sense uh uh anyway i so one reason also if we're comparing vc and vc right uh, that's interesting to me i think because the reason we know each other is because we met in china Uh, doing more venture capital investments in China. Um, so how would you how would you characterize VC in China? Is it is there a, in your opinion a, a large difference between VC in China and the U.S. or the well? How would you characterize the difference between VC in in, in several regions of the world? I know you're quite uh, involved in in the Nordic countries in Europe as well, but maybe especially China versus other places. Well, I think I think in China. Um, and I should be very diplomatic in what I say. I think in China, um, uh, things tend to happen faster and better when you are collaborating with the government. And to have government relationships is incredibly important. And a lot of Chinese VC funds have a certain percentage of their capital 
So when you're a VC, you're not much of a venture capitalist without the capital. So you've got to raise money from somebody. And in China, you tend to see these municipal fund of funds that will commit some cash to the fund. And then you have these fund of funds that are large pools of money that can put money in as a matching basis to the government money. And the government typically will not invest in a Chinese fund without matching money. Very similar in Europe. And um, you, you tend to have state-owned enterprises, SOEs, are investing as well. So you end up with these corporate SOEs. You get these sometimes listed companies that are on the stock exchange. And you've got these specific fund of funds that their business is to, it's cheaper to put the money in the fund of funds and have them do the work of evaluating a fund manager and even having being able to write a bigger check by aggregating money to then invest, meeting the minimum check size for some uh, VC fund. So you tend to have that. And I think that relationships in China are as important as they are anywhere and even more important. If someone has the relationship to get the money, that was even more important than having the skill set or experience to be a venture capitalist. So you tend to see, you know, you have first time entrepreneurs. I've met a lot of people that had no experience that would really get them a job in venture capital, but they had the relationships to get the money. And then they've learned from that, that experience. So it's a bit of a younger, it's a younger industry. Um, from what I've seen, you know, in China. And I would say that um, you have a supply and demand. What's the supply of startups seeking to raise money? And what's the demand from investors to invest in those? And there's a strike price of what's the supply and demand for gold? And that's going to set the strike price. I think that compared to Europe or the United States and Nordics, um, in Nordics, there's a high volume of high quality startups, and there's a relatively small amount of cash from investors. So North Zone Creandum, these guys have near monopoly to invest in the companies at very um, investor-friendly terms. Whereas in China, that same startup would have a much higher demand from relatively new fund managers and I think that the valuations end up being higher, um, which is a positive for the entrepreneur. But it can be dangerous as well. On valuations, an experienced VC in Silicon Valley, like going back to Node Prime, uh, Ericsson gave them $5 million of revenue in the fourth quarter of 2017, I think it was. And it was up from almost zero. So they had a couple hundred grand from some POC trials. All of a sudden, they're on a $20 million revenue run rate out of nowhere. In Europe, somebody would try to raise money at the biggest valuation possible. So they probably would have raised money on a $200 million valuation as a 10x multiple of their 20x annual revenue run rate. That's what I expect to see in Europe. In the United States, we raised $10 million on a pre of 40 because that's a post money of 50 million. And if we sold it for 4X, that would satisfy investors, which means we could sell the company for 200 million. And, it, and, and there's a lot of buyers that could buy Node Prime for 200 million. 
and we could run a very healthy investment banking process and make a quick forex. In Europe, now they've got a 200 million post. They have to sell the company for like 800 million to satisfy investors. And there's only a small group of companies ready to do that. And what happens when they say no? So, you know, there's, there's a different evolution of levels of sophistication at play. Um, it seems counterintuitive to raise 10 on 40 when you could raise 50 on 200, but we thought we were pretty smart doing 10 on 40. Um, and I just think that's, that's what 20 years of experience, you know, kind of looks like as opposed to four years of experience. Yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting you mentioned that, you know, in the Nordics, uh, the, you know, the investor density that, that, uh, that, a, that a company will, will meet is, is, is lower, right? And I, I have a friend in, in Sweden who's, uh, he started a, a long range of companies, uh, some of which did pretty well. And we were discussing just this at one point, how to choose your VC, right? And he said, well, you know, look, Eric, you, you have to bear in mind that it's all good and well to say that you should... Uh, you should evaluate your options when you look at VC companies and pick the, the, the one that suits you best. But sometimes you only have the one, yes. the one, one investors, right? So, yes. but if you if you then, as you say, there there, there may be more more suitors uh, to a company in China. If you are in the fortunate position of, you know, having discussions with several venture 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 investors, um, what what should what to think about, right? When when you know, when, when choosing your, your venture capitalist, if you're in that fortunate position, right? What should you, what are, this, what are the signs of a good one and what, what are the warning signs of a, of a not so good one? Well, so I think that um, the, the key things I advise the startup to consider are one, what is the reputation of the fund? So is this, you know, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, or is it, you know, the boiler room, JPM Marlin from Long Island, you know, making fun of the movie Boiler Room. So is it, is it like Tsinghua University or Harvard? Or is it a small fund nobody knows? And to, you know, get into Harvard or Stanford or Wharton or Tsinghua, that's good, right? So you should consider the reputation of the fund. But you should also really consider the relationship with a partner who's leading the fund. If you get along with me, and you have good chemistry with me, then it's probably gonna go well. If you've already decided that you think my comments were incredibly arrogant and I'm just a horrible guy, then if you hate me, I'm probably gonna feel it. And the relationship is a bit of a marriage, might not end well. So you should make sure you've got good chemistry with a partner and ideally the partner understands your startup and understands your sector and you think that they can add value and you're going to get along. So the reputation of the fund is important, but you really need to have good chemistry and relationship with the individual people you're dealing with, you know, at the venture fund. And then a third thing is you should consider the economics. Entrepreneurs tend to, that are first time entrepreneurs, they tend to only focus on the valuation and their dilution which is um, a more experienced entrepreneur might be figuring out, so if I do this now, what happens next? So if you raise money at a $200 million valuation, 
because you've got one customer that brought in 5 million in the last three months of revenue. What if Ericsson backs away and your revenues go down to zero? Now you went from a 200 million funding round to a, a lower valuation. That's where CEOs get fired and wiped out and people get hurt. So, you know, it's important to be sophisticated on your understanding of the terms of the deal. So I'd say reputation of the fund, chemistry with a partner, and economics and terms. And the economics and terms should be more sophisticated than the single thing that baby entrepreneur understands, which is crying about valuation the second they come out of their mother's womb. As they get older and more experienced, they're going to say, well, at least I've got control of my board of directors. Governance is incredibly important right next to valuation. Um, what's the employee stock option plan? How much capital do we have reserved for future funding rounds? And, or how much equity do we have to attract and retain talent as well as go through future funding rounds? And let's price it now for success on the next funding round. Once you're in the venture capital ecosystem, you tend to raise capital every kind of nine to 24 months on the, on the long end. And you kind of want to set the pricing now to make sure you're successful on the next one. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I, yeah, we, 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 maybe we do a couple more questions and then start sort of rounding off. But I was thinking, cause <clears throat> This is maybe not so VC related, but you, because you've done this journey, right? You started a company, you built it, it, it did well, you did your exit, and you also worked with another long list of, of uh, startups as an investor. And um, how would you advise, say that, because your job as the CEO of a startup with uh, that consists of three co-founders, right, is, is rather different than the job of a CEO that is taking his company uh, uh, public, right? Um, how do you, what do you need to do to grow with the company to, 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 to remain the CEO throughout that journey? Or should you even attempt to, right? Should you realize I'm, I'm, a, I'm a startup CEO, I should get off, get off at some point. But if you want to, yeah, so yeah, I think, if you want to do that journey, what should you do? So, so the question is, um, a lot of first-time founders are concerned about being pushed to the side and a new CEO comes in. How do you protect yourself and remain CEO? Is that your question, Eric? Yeah, well, I mean, it's one thing to protect yourself, right? But, you know, that, that's very uh, uh, defensive, right? I mean, if, if you want to remain a good CEO as you transition from a you know, a garage startup into an actual company until up to a rather big one, right? How, what do you need to do to be able to grow with the company to remain a good CEO? Right. Well, I tend to like it when the founding CEO remains the CEO all the way, you know, like, and that they evolve as an evolutionary organism themselves. So, the skill set of having the grit of bootstrapping and getting the first customers. You're, you're the head of sales. You're the head of product. You're, you're a fundraising team. You're doing everything. I think it's important for founders to try to recognize what are we missing on our skill set? What are the missing bits that need filling in? Where are we strong? Where are we weak? 
and then make an effort to fill in the missing bits with internal resources and external resources. For example, if you're weak on fundraising and you bring me in as your VC, I, I kind of know everybody. And so I can introduce you to the investors that I think are suitable for this geography, this sector, this stage um, to fund you on your next round. Um, if you're weak on sales, a lot of CEOs fail to recruit ahead of sales and, and even understand how to speak the language of compensation, bonuses, how to, you know, engineers are very different animals than these shark sales guys that want a bigger car and a bigger house. You know, they're so different. So, you know, I often bring in this one guy I know who is an extremely ex successful entrepreneur who's been a VC since 2000, Tim Galeri. And if Tim invests, he can fill in the missing bit of structuring the sales organization and scaling to the next level. So we do a big funding round. Tim comes in and really teaches the guy the sales force. I do it too, but I'm not as good as Tim. And I don't have the level of experience of building sales teams of 500 people. My biggest sales team was 55 people, um, whereas Tim has taken it much bigger than me. And so I think it's important to bring, surround yourself with people that are smarter than you, surround yourself with people that can do the things you're not good at, and that's more likely you will survive as the CEO. And just like in a marriage, a lot of communication. Communicate with everybody constantly within your organization and constantly communicate with your board of directors externally and constantly communicate with new, new investors, buyers that will emanate by you, bankers that'll take you public or sell you. There's a lot of people to talk to and only so many hours for sleep and exercise, you know, and, and taking a vacation, unless you're Swedish. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but so, so I think that um, take a view of your company is constantly changing as it goes on a roller coaster ride, hopefully up and to the right on the continuum. Recruit people that do the stuff that you're not good at offload sales to somebody else, but keep communicating, offload these things. And another one is pay very careful attention to the construction of your board of directors. Um, so at the end of the day, the board can vote to replace the CEO. And if you've got the votes, then you're winning. You know, so certain politicians have a lockdown on 30% of the population. And, and, and with that, they've got absolute power. So sometimes a subset of the board is what is required to lead without anyone uh, replacing you. And so I would be very careful of who you bring in onto the board of directors and make sure that they think you're the smartest guy who they should follow rather than replace you if you're worried about being replaced. And it's, it's actually a big topic of when is it right to step down? I know a guy who was a big VC who then became entrepreneur. So people go back and forth in both directions. And he um, put his founder shares on a four-year vesting schedule, which is kind of best breed, best of breed, best practice. And then when he hit four years of fully vesting, he said, why should I stay here? Because I have all the equity I'll ever get in this deal. And he's already a pretty rich guy. He replaced himself with another CEO, someone internally, and then he left, and then that CEO 
went out and did a management buyout and then pushed him down to near zero. And when the company was sold, it was sold for less than the money invested and he got nothing. So leaving and replacing yourself on purpose is a delicate, complicated endeavor in itself. One second. Sure. Sorry, my son is still here. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm thinking about two questions more. Uh, one is um, our discussion now is really about the relation between the VC and the entrepreneur, but you have a, you're interfacing in another, in another direction too, right? You have investors, you know, limited partners who in turn put money into your funds, right? So how's your daily life, uh, you know, raising money from these guys and how do you work with your limited partners just to sort of, give a more fuller picture of, of yeah, the, the full uh, picture of a VC. That's right. So, so uh, my role is the general partner or GP, and then we have limited partners or LPs that invest capital into the fund. The GP also invests, I invest my personal savings into the fund as well. So I'm a GP and an LP in every fund that we operate. Um, typically VCs get their money from a mix of investors and for some, it's all institutional and for some it's even all kind of retail type investors. So we, we raise capital from uh, institutional investors like fund of funds, endowments, pension, pension funds, insurance companies. Um, and then we also raise money from large corporations. So part of my working on and research on the masters of corporate venture capital book have been very productive for me because I can talk to a large corporation that's looking to get like Ericsson out of their number one in a declining business into a growing business like the data centers. So we can be very sensitive to understanding their financial return desires and their strategic return desires. I think the whole world is going digital. Corona is an accelerant of that. And so governments, large corporations know they have to automate workflows, accelerate you know, use of things like Zoom and, you know, video conferencing. And VCs tend to back the companies that are making that happen faster and to automate human tasks with software. You know, if you have a person counting something by hand, they're not going to do as well as the one that's got a spreadsheet like Microsoft Excel. Trying to do a private equity deal without a computer is insane. It's like trying to do it on a calculator as opposed to a spreadsheet. Well, we basically think all business right now and government and education and healthcare is being done like in caveman methods where the human literally does everything. And we think it's a great opportunity to begin to automate these workflows and bring technology. And so one human can do a million things in a second rather than um, over a long period of time. So um, we find it valuable to have large corporations and businesses as investors in our funds. And we also like to have the individuals. So it's a small percentage of our money, but it's a big value add to us as a firm that we've got, no, no, I love it. By the way, that BBC thing where he's pushing the kid out, like taught everybody, just, you know, put that cat on your lap or your kid on the lap during these COVID yeah. things. It'll probably stay with us forever. But 
you know, what will stay with us forever, even from COVID is, you know, the need for companies to have a digital transformation program, but in a real way. And so we find it valuable to have high net worth individuals as investors in our fund, have large corporations as strategic investors in our fund, and we're able to create partnerships between the startups and these LPs. At the end of the day, we wanna add value to the startup beyond our cash check. And so selection of these LPs is a true differentiator. You know, I'll close in saying that a lot of our investors come from different places like Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Switzerland, the Arabic Middle East. And so for us, we're able to help our companies do business in China or do business in Southeast Asia, as opposed to just being five guys in Palo Alto, California that don't have a passport. So it's important to get, you know, kind of international set of LPs from our perspective. So I unmute myself first and thanks, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so maybe we round off by, by, by asking what's your sort of general advice on the one hand to students who are, why should they consider um, once graduating, not seeking employment, but rather trying to create their own employment, so to speak, right? Yeah. As an entrepreneur and, and also general advice to budding entrepreneurs, right? You know, what, what to think of and what to look out for. Yeah, well, I think the culture is changing. Um, you know, it, in Japan, people's top graduate from University of Tokyo still has their first choice is getting a job at the government or a large corporation or big consulting company. When, when we had the dot-com crash in 2000, 2001, um, uh, MBA students were jokingly saying, you know what B2B means? It doesn't mean uh, business to business, it means back to banking. And B2C doesn't mean business to consumer, it means back to consulting. And so even in an economic downturn, there might be less entrepreneurship, but an economic downturn could have people fired and furloughed and they have a little check to live on and they're forced to develop their own startup if their job search is not going well. I think that in the United States, we've hit like a peak level of culture that everybody wants to be Mark Zuckerberg and be worth a hundred billion dollars and have it happen overnight and not work your way up the Japanese ladder to peak at 500,000 annual income. So I think that children today are very materialistic and they want to drive a Ferrari and they want to be rich and they want an SUV in private schools. And a lot of them are chasing entrepreneurship as a way of doing that. Um, as far as I'm concerned, it's good to have, you know, the percentage of patents and innovation that used to be coming out of all corporates, so like 80% of all patents were coming out of, you know, Munich, large corporations in Germany compared to startups. Now we're seeing a lot more innovation happen with startups, and that's part of the interplay with corporates. If you're, if if American top graduate from Stanford wants to be the next Mark Zuckerberg, what's your strategy to access that talent pool? And so I think it's corporate venture capital and it's M and A, um, and it's a real shift. It wasn't that long ago that that top graduate wanted to work at your big corporate. Now they're going into startups. I think if I think it's probably smart to join a startup that's already funded as your first job out of college rather than start your own. I'm not against starting your own, but starting your own when you have no business experience 
you know, sounds like a disaster, a recipe for disaster, but it might make sense to join a high growth startup, experience from osmosis a whole lot of learning there, and then with a few team members, go and start a startup and maybe get a little bit of funding from the CEO. And that CEO can introduce you to VCs and other people to help your company. If you end up getting startup experience and it's in real technology, you're opening good career paths. You could go become a Goldman Sachs investment banker because you understand startups, VC, and technology. You could get a job as a VC and you've got some startup experience. Um, or you could stay with entrepreneurship and be successful there. Um, when you join an accelerator these days, if there's you know, 50 companies or 100 companies in that Y Combinator accelerator, yours might fail, but you get recruited to join the one that's really winning. And being an early employee of Google or Baidu or Tencent or Facebook, you know, that could be a very good outcome for you. Um, you might become very rich and just use that money to be an investor. So I think being an entrepreneur in a tech startup has lots of good career paths for you. What's probably not good is when you join a startup or start one and it keeps living as a walking dead and never goes up. And you wake up 15 years later that you're still in a bad business. So I think it's important to lift your head up and look around and say, should I stay here or should I make a move? Yeah, be quick to pull off the bandaid if, if necessary. Um, that, that's very good advice. Uh, uh, I think that, that you know, uh, join, a, join a startup, first of all, learn the ropes a little bit and, and, and sort of get immersed in the community to find the good opportunities, the right people to work with. Yeah, also, sometimes it's good to come right out of school. And if you can get a job at Google or Baidu or one of these big famous companies, Tencent, and work on something really interesting, that can be an incredible pedigree. You know, having Google and Facebook on your resume, on your CV, can be more important than having gone to Chenghua Harvard University. Um, so heading into the large corporate in tech can be good. You know, I, I sometimes say, if you get a job working for the US post office, since email, you know, it's going down. They're shutting post office. So even if you're really good, and you're the best employee at the post office, if they keep getting smaller, it's hard to go up. If you join a company mm. like Google that's just making so much money, it's a monopoly, um, just by not making mistakes, you might go up just because you, you're there. So it's you're not a bad thing. Yeah, it's not a bad thing to go into one of these. You know, Amazon is probably going to keep growing, you know? So if, if you get Amazon right away, a lot of startups I've seen say, um, we were doing the reviews on Amazon and now we're taking the same people who did the reviews for Amazon or offering reviews for any website. So that's, that's an actual thing. You work at a large corporation that has enough power to do something internally and you create it as a product service offering for any website, you know, or to anybody. Um, so you see a lot of tech transfer coming out of large corporates. So that can be, I think it's good if you're young and graduating from college or university, explore all of these opportunities. Take some job interviews with startups, take some job interviews with corporates, take some job interviews with banking and consulting and make your own decision. 
Yeah, that, that's, that's good advice. And, and, and it makes sense if you go corporate uh, to think about which corporate you're working at. Right? I mean, like in Hangzhou, we certainly have a whole cloud of entrepreneurs and new startups that, you know, originates from Alibaba, right? The people work there and then they strike out of their own. So I, I think this is a, this is a great end note for, for this, this discussion. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Dinner and drinks are certainly on me next time you're in China. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I will add the, uh, the information about your books uh, in the end notes uh, or the, the, this, the notes here. Um, I'll check up so I have both the, the Chinese and English versions for those books that I have both versions. I, I will also uh, put out a link to Wall Street and Gordon Ghetto. Our students are slightly younger than us, so they may not have actually seen that movie, but it's, it's, it's a good movie. Dusting it off. It's, it is a good movie. Uh, much better than the sequel, I would say. But um, this has been great. Andrew, thanks so much. And okay, I hope to see you soon. Thank all you. Right. Look forward to when bye we bye. can all get back to China. Okay, bye for now. Yeah.